Fannie Mae is crashing. Is it really that bad? You're in the right place, folks, because this is where the money is. Welcome to the show, folks. I'm David Hansen. This here is Patrick Morris. Morning, David. Patrick, Robert Morris, the university, lost in their conference championship for basketball, not going to the NCAA tournament unless they get a, an at-large bid. I don't think that's happening. I don't think so either. Is this a crushing day for everything Morris? It really is. You know, my older brother, he's actually John Robert Morris. We affectionately call him Robbie. There you go. So it's all, I, usually, you know, if there's a 215 matchup with them, sometimes I pick him just for my family loyalty. Who is the most famous Morris? there's ever been. Do you even know? Yeah, absolutely. That would be uh, Tom Morris, who invented the game of golf. Another wow. great game. Yeah, I did not Morris. know that. I thought like some Scottish guy invented it. I'm, Does not sound like a very Scottish name. I know, I know. But hey, it's a great last name. What can I say? All right, moving on to the first headline. I alluded to it in the intro. Fannie Mae this is a headline that you wrote yesterday. Correct, yeah. Com. Why Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac shares plunged today. They were down as, as much as 40% yeah. at some points during the day. And as of filming right now and recording this this episode down another 10, 15%. So pretty rough right here. What was the catalyst that caused this? Yeah, so the Senate Banking Committee came out yesterday and they essentially, in essence, released a bill that said, hey, here's Fannie and Freddie and here's what we'd like to do with them. And, and many people like Bruce Berkowitz and Bill Ackman have campaigned and said, hey, let's transfer all of these so the government doesn't have a single role in this. Let's transfer mm-hmm. them into private hands and really transfer the ownership of them. But instead, the bill that came out said, you know, actually, I think what we'd rather like to do is create a mirror of the FDIC, so the Deposit Insurance Commission, instead make it the Federal Mortgage Insurance right, Commission. Right, so the FMIC. Yeah, and so instead of having it transfer into the hands of private shareholders, they would essentially just create... Uh, an insurance entity, and mm-hmm. it's and and one of the important things too is there was no direct mention of what they would do for shareholders, but I think just the sheer silence of what they right. suggested, I think that scared a lot of people. By not mentioning them, maybe that scared them a little bit more. And this mm-hmm. was the this was Johnson and Crapo, the two senators, correct? Yep. And they wanted to, like you said, create this new fund kind of insurance entity, very similar to what we heard. Bob Corker and Mark Warner do yep. in the Corker-Warner bill, which is also kind of making its way around Congress. So we have all these bills. None of them are being very kind to the shareholders, whether it be mm-hmm. common or preferred. And it's interesting because this announcement came out, I think, around 10, 11 a.m. yesterday, yeah. right? And you didn't see shares of Fannie Mae fall like this until 1.30. So yeah. It's a very interesting situation because this wasn't a surprise. We knew that the senators had been thinking about this. This isn't a revolutionary idea that they had. They've been talking about this for months here. So I think it highlights that Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, these aren't normal circumstances. Yeah. We don't really know why it dropped 40% on news that basically everyone already knew. So a very, very odd situation. Yeah, and it really was. And we talked about this off off video yesterday, but it was really interesting. I mean, the fall of them was very progressive, and they're traded over the counter. It's Mm -hmm. not like they're on a traditional exchange. And so a a part of me me wonders, and I've seen some other speculation, like, hey, are one of the guys who owns a huge position in this, did they look at this and say, okay, let's just cut our losses, and that was the reason for the progressive drop, versus 
you know, t- someone that, that read the bill and said, okay, now I have to get rid of it. But, I mean, it's, it's truly an odd situation. There's yeah, that's a good point on, on looking over the counter. It's not, the volume is not as easy as kind of, if you look at a, a Bank of America, it's very easy to trade in and out of Bank of America. Yep. We don't recommend people trading in Absolutely and out of stocks. Not. But with an over-the-counter stock like this, the spreads are going to be long, larger. It's going to be harder to get in and out. So when you have something like this that with a lot of people selling, it can really force it way down, which is what it did. Exactly. All right, moving on to the in-focus for today. Talking a little bit of Bank of America here. And another favorite of another, uh, many. <laughs> another favorite of many. Whether people are bullish on Bank of America, bearish on Bank of America, one of the things that you always hear, regardless, mm-hmm. is, well, they're not going to return to pre-crisis multiples. And when I yep. say multiples, I mean price-to-book value, price-to-tangible book value. Everyone says, there's no way they're mm-hmm. going to return to even two times tangible book. That's wishful thinking, whether it's bull or bear. So what I want to talk about today is, should we be questioning that at all? Is it possible that Bank of America gets to two times tangible book in the near future? Is that possible? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, when you first glance at Bank of America, you see it's in 2013, it was this, this great return for it. We, we talked about it the other day, but, you know, it brought in over $11 billion in net income. In the previous five years before that, it only brought in $13 billion. But when you look at it, its return on assets was only half a percent. Right. And then its return on equity was 4.5%, which just falls well behind its peers of uh, even a competitor like Citigroup, which yeah. many people often question, are like, well, what about Citi and Bank of America? And so I think the thing is, and, and one of the really interesting things about it is it it's certainly improving, but it still has a really long way to go. And when you look at its its current price to tangible book multiple of 1.3, 1. 1.4%, 1. Mm-hmm. depending on you know the stock and what it's doing, and you're like, you know, it, it kind of isn't the most unreasonable to think that, hey, once those return on assets and equity numbers start improving, that it could have a long road ahead of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the 4 to 5% return on equity there on $11 billion, but like we said on Monday, the consumer real estate business lost almost $6 billion. Yeah. So if you think about just getting that to break even, that's yeah. another $6 billion that's going to the bottom line here. Uh, and one of the things that, that you've done some research on is just Bank of America's expenses and their efficiency yeah. ratio, which have been ridiculously high. It's yeah. insane. And even with Project New BAC from Brian Moynihan, They've gotten expenses out of the system, but mm-hmm. there's still a lot way to long, long way to go, right? Yeah, no, and that's the fascinating thing is, I mean, you have all of these efforts at Bank of America and these initiatives to really go through and just clean up their essentially the the mess that they got themselves mm-hmm. in, especially with the purchase of Countrywide. And that takes a lot of people and a lot of manpower. And as kind of all of that gets filtered through, uh, one, of the, one of the key ways to gauge that is the efficiency ratio, which essentially measures every dollar mm-hmm. or what every dollar of revenue actually costs to the bank. And so when you think about it in the efficiency ratio of Bank of America, last year it stood at 77%, which is just like, I mean, enormously high compared mm-hmm. to all of its peers. And so one of the things that, just a quick back of the envelope you know, math calculation that I did was, okay, what if that efficiency ratio just fell to 70%? Mm-hmm. And it would add another $6 billion in right. net income to, or not necessarily in net income because you have to pay taxes yeah, on yeah, it and yeah. all that, but $6 billion in just... Uh, operating income. Yeah, and in operating income to the bank. And then it's like, wow, $6 billion by just dropping to 70%. Mm-hmm. 
And then you look and it, you say, okay, what if it got to 65%, which is kind of in line with um, you know, what, what you'll see from uh, companies like Citigroup or uh, I think JP and mm-hmm. I think PNC is around that area right. as well. Say, okay, that's another $11 billion right. in operating income. So you're like, holy smokes, just by improving that. And then so one of the last things I did that I think was truly fascinating is if you look at, okay, what if it got all the way up to 52.4% in its efficiency ratio. It's like, Patrick, that's a really random number. Very that's, that's what U.S. Bancorp does, mm-hmm. and they are really considered the pinnacle of banks. You know, And you look at their price-to-book multiple, it's because they have a great return on right. equity, great return on assets, but also a really high efficiency ratio, and that's why they trade... Which kind of fuels that, yeah, those returns. And that's why they trade at uh, 3.0 price-to-tangible mm-hmm. book and higher. And so I did the math there just... A, Quick plugging in on that $90 billion in, in revenue. If Bank of America did that, it would add an additional $22 billion wow. in operating income. And all of that is to say that doesn't even look at what if Bank of America can grow its revenue. It's just exactly, yeah. what if they just get better at running efficiently and effectively mm-hmm. and they don't have to keep shelling out money for whether it be lawsuits or settlements or you know, cleaning up some of the, the troubles that they've got themselves mm-hmm. in. So that's just looking at what can they do inside the bank itself to improve their improve the results for both it and its shareholders. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, with that type of scenario, that's wishful thinking, right? Of course, I mean, to yeah. Get to, to even think about getting insane. to 52%, it, it's maybe insane. But I think it does show you that the results today are so depressed, even still. I yeah. Mean, like you said, much better than the previous years, but still very depressed. And historically, when you look at banks, not just Bank of America, mm-hmm. the market tends to value banks how they're performing today. They'll right. be somewhat forward-looking, as we're seeing that with Bank of America. Mm-hmm. Yes, the returns and the multiples don't totally make sense today, so yeah. it's a little bit forward-looking. But the market has a really hard time looking five years down the road and saying, okay, what's today's price yeah. and what could returns be in five years if kind of everything goes their way. Uh, so I don't think it's insane to think that it's going to trade at two times tangible book. Right. I don't think it's going to happen in the next two months. Of course not. But looking two, three years down the road, I think mm-hmm. that's pretty likely. Yeah. I, mean, I, I think there's a lot of underlying potential here. And again, I, I stress potential because they can still mess up, right? Of course. I mean, yeah, this isn't absolutely. a guarantee to just grow the business here and make good returns. So as long as they do well and are good bankers, I think it's possible. Yeah, I would agree with you wholeheartedly. All right, let's move on to the mailbag. I love it. We have an email address, WTMI at fool.com. Send us an email. Patrick loves them. I love them. I do love emails. Tyler loves them. He was on the show yesterday. Matt loves them when he's not in Costa Rica. Exactly. And (laughs) here is the question from Jonathan Curry. says, if I could be so bold to ask, which which of these do you see as the best bet for the next five years? Berkshire Hathaway, Markel, IPE, and Moellis. So thanks for the question, Jonathan. And again, you can email us, WTMI at fool.com. Best bet next five years. What do you got? That's a great question. So if I'm totally honest, when we first saw that question, I didn't know what IPE or Mm -hmm. Moellis was. Uh, So one, IPE is, if my understanding is that's exactly what he was looking for, it's an inflation-linked bond index fund. Mm -hmm. So immediately that is kind of a question in my mind. It's like, okay, I'm not, I'm not the most active bond investor. I, yep. I don't really know a ton about it. Moellis, it's this investment bank going for an IPO. And then people always call Markel. It's, 
My understanding is it's a great company. People always refer to it as the mini Berkshire Hathaway. Mm -hmm. And there's certainly a, a ton of attractive things about it. Um, it is really compelling and really interesting. Personally, I don't know a ton about it um, in terms of really kind of the underlying mechanics of it. And so when I look at that list, I really think, you know, I think I'd put Berkshire Hathaway right on top. You know, you look at Warren Buffett and just the reality that he's one of the best capital allocators around. He's not going to be there forever. We understand that. Mm -hmm. But uh, I believe the question stayed directly the next five years. Yeah. I'm really comfortable with where Berkshire Hathaway sits, what it invests in, and what its businesses are. I mean, you look at it, whether it be the railroad business, the energy business, there's just so much there. And it's such a diverse company where it's like, okay, that sure looks attractive when compared to the the other, especially the first two, mm -hmm. and then also Markel. Yeah, and one of the things with Berkshire is that a lot of people have been talking about recently is, well, they failed to grow book value at the same rate as the S&P, right? But it's been a great run for the last five years, and yeah. if there is a, a slowdown in the market or potentially a recession, I mean, recessions happen, what, every 11 years or so. It's I not, believe so, yeah. It's not a ridiculous thing to think that we do have another recession in the next five years. I think you should be confident that Berkshire's going to outpace the market during those years. But I'm not going with Berkshire. Oh, man. i got to go with Markel. And oh, I full disclosure, IPE. Full disclosure, Markel's the biggest holding in my portfolio, oh, so cool. I obviously like the company here. Next five years look good. Next 10 yeah. years look good. Next 15 years look good, I think. Yeah. Markel's been a great stock to own, and we talk about it being attractive today. It's been an amazing performer, and mm -hmm. I think the market's pricing it today as if its best days are behind it. But I don't really? see any reason... Why that should be the case. They continue to be really good underwriters. Last year, so not in, in 2012, they underwrote at a profit despite there being Hurricane Sandy, which, which, is truly which hurt a bunch of insurers yeah. there. Uh, so still profitable during a, a year of a big catastrophe there. Great 2013, mm -hmm. great capital allocators uh, yeah. with Tom Gaynor there at the top. So tons of things to like here. And the valuation is, I'm not going to say it's dirt cheap, but I think it's a very, very fair valuation yeah. for, in my mind, what can be an incredible company and has incredible growth opportunities going forward for the next 5, 10, 15. Yeah, and you know, just thinking about it, you, we mentioned Warren Buffett. He said, he'd said he always say he'd rather buy a great company at a fair yeah. price than a fair company at a great price. I think so. that's what you're getting. There you have it. Alright, moving on for the game today. We're doing a little bit of Rank It. It's Wednesday. Excellent. We do Rank It on Wednesdays, and we're doing a little credit card okay. slash lenders, yeah. slash stuff. This is a space that you look at a fair amount. So we are ranking uh, MasterCard, Visa, yep. American Express, Capital One, and Discover. Patrick, give us your top five rankings. Yeah, so that'd be great. So my number one, Discover Card. Next on the list would be MasterCard, then Visa, then Capital One, and American Express. And honestly, if I, if I really look at it, I have Discover, and then really, I think it's 2A through D. I think mm. those are all great companies underneath it, but I just, I, I really look at Discover, and I think it's just, it's such a compelling business. So, uh, one of the things that they pointed out uh, in their last earnings release, so from 2009 to 2013, so the last five years, mm -hmm. here's some numbers they threw out. They, they're, they grew their loans on average by 6% a year. The, the rest of the large banks grew them at 3% a year. Mm -hmm. Their efficiency ratio was 37%. So we wow. talked about Bank of America yeah. earlier. It was Discover operated at half of that over the last five years. Some of the most difficult five years in banking and finance history. Mm -hmm. And its average return on equity was 19% 
versus the average of those industrial banks mentioned earlier was 5%. And the thing is that 19% return on equity was less than what they did in 2013 alone when their ROE was 24%. Right. So just, and I think one of the most compelling things about it, so it produces all these great return numbers. And sometimes when you hear that, especially about banks, there's always a hesitancy like, Oh, goodness, they probably cut corners. Their customers probably hate them. Mm -hmm. But they always rank rank really highly on customer satisfaction. Personally, so this is just a fun fact about me and really how I learned about Discover. When I got my first credit card when I was in college, the only one I could get was a Discover card. And I looked Mm -hmm. into it. And, I mean, really, I've had it for, you know, so many years now. And, like, when you just call the company and you call the number and you always see it on commercials. They're like, oh, you're going to be talking to yourself. But really, when you call a number, it's like, hey, this is Larry from Ohio. This is who you're talking to. And that's immediately who you speak with. And so I think that when you couple its really, I mean, just attractive results and then add to it its great customer service. And then from that, it pays out a great dividend mm-hmm. at 1.5% or so, which for a credit card company is, is pretty reasonable and pretty good. And then two, the final thing that I'll say about it is that one of the things that I think is also very attractive is it operates in a lot of different spaces. People really think of it like, oh, it's just a credit card company. Mm-hmm. But they make a lot of auto loans through their indirect lending arm. Uh, in addition to that, they're, they're the third largest behind Sally May and Wells Fargo. We talked about this on Monday, but mm-hmm. they issue a lot of student loans. Yep. Um, and they're a private lender. And so they do that. They make a lot of personal loans. And so they operate in all these different businesses. And there are all these businesses that not a lot of other banks play into. Right. Some of them certainly do. Um, but they can kind of be the market leader in these really specialty areas, which I think is a really compelling consideration for them. All right. I have Discover. Yes. Close to the top of my list, but okay. not quite. Here are my five rankings. I have them right in the middle there. I got American Express, Capital One, Discover, Visa, and MasterCard. And like you, I don't dislike any of these companies. I don't mm-hmm. think any of them are. I wouldn't call you crazy to buy any of these companies. Even today, even people, the market's a little frothy right now. Valuations yeah. are high. I wouldn't call you crazy to buy any of these companies. But I'm going with American Express, and it's kind of. I don't want to say it's the rich man's discover, but yeah. <laughs> it, it kind of is the rich yeah, man's. Kind of, is. kind of is the rich man's discover here. Um, I like their exposure to. I like discover they operate in kind of certain areas, and I yeah. like their exposure to the higher net worth client, and the network part of their business accounts yeah. for a larger part of their revenue than discover. Discover they have their own network, but it's a very very small part of their revenue yeah. there. I like that diversification at American Express. I think it's an amazing business. I think it has a lot of opportunity to go abroad here. And Matt, my usual co-host, he's not the biggest fan of the valuation day, but again, I'm going to say it again. I think this is a really, really good business at a fair price today. Would I like to buy it cheaper? Yes. But this is one that I feel comfortable holding. If the market goes down, I feel comfortable with the underlying business here. And I'd be willing to buy more if the price is right. So I'm going with American Express. Yeah. my number one. And Buffett loves it. Buffett loves it. All right, let's finish off on the Twitter sphere. We have one tweet for today, and this is it. It's from Jake Grovem. He says, wow. 22 corporations have greater than 50% of overseas profits. 285 have the rest. And we have a picture of this here. Uh, we hear a bunch about oh, overseas profits are a huge part of American business now. Yeah. But they're showing that it's really a main part of the biggest companies in the U.S. here. So 22 companies have over 50% of the profits here. And some of the wow. financials, I'll, I'll read some of the companies off here. Uh, we got Citigroup, $43 billion. 
uh, JP Morgan, $28 billion there. Those are the only two financials, I think, well, that I see on there. Well, at GE, I, don't, I think their finance arm only operates in, I think it's only in North America. They, um, they probably have some operations outside yeah. of it. GE looks like, it looks like GE has the biggest uh, portion of the overseas profit of any company here. Yeah. Uh, so I thought that was interesting. That is uh, very interesting. That's something you hear a lot, that every company is, gets a big part of their profits from overseas, but it doesn't appear to be the case. So if yeah. you're listening, uh, this is a thing from, from Bloomberg. I'm sure you can Google it, Bloomberg Overseas Profits, if you want to see the graphic. It's pretty cool. It is very interesting. All right, that is our show for today. Patrick, thanks for being on this yeah, week. Yeah, thank you for having me. You're it's heading back wonderful. to your hometown of Charlotte tomorrow. Yeah, so. looking forward to it. Thanks for being here. All right, that's our show. You can find us on Twitter. We are at TMF Financials. And you can email us, WTMI at Fool.com. We'll see you tomorrow. People on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear.